Welcome once again to the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Stephanie Nihirni. And I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. And if you haven't noticed, this is our 10th full episode. And that's not including our bonus episodes over on our Patreon. Indeed, this podcast is something that was in the ideas file for a couple of years. And we finally got to make a start on that back in March when we recorded our St. Patrick's Day special. So it's really great to be sitting here recording episode 10 and a big, big thank you to all of our listeners and of course to our patrons for getting us this far and thanks so much for all your comments and messages on our Instagram and Twitter accounts. Yeah, it's really great to see the listener numbers climb with every episode and great to get those messages as well. Yeah, your feedback really means a lot to us and this is also the season one finale. Yep. Don't worry, you won't be long waiting for season two. We'll be kicking that off with the Wing of Attain part one around the time of the winter solstice, so in about a month's time. But we wanted to draw a line between the end of this story and what comes next. And if you are listening now and haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do hit the subscribe button so you get a notification for our next episode once it's online. Up to now, our main story arc has focused on two sagas, the first battle of Moitura and the second battle of Moitura. But within the saga of the second battle, there is a bit of a time jump of seven years after the events that take place in today's story. So in season two, we're going to place some of the standalone stories involving the two a day within that time gap and come back to the conclusion of the second battle later in the year. And if you want a sneak peek at what might be down the road, make sure you listen to this episode to the very end of the credits today, as it does contain a bit of a reveal. Our story has two parts today, and I'm very excited to say that the first part focuses on my favourite, the Dagda. He's appeared in a lot of our stories so far in a supporting role, but today he's the star of the show. Yes, Ochid Olaher, also known as the Dagda, also known as Ruaroesa, among his many, many names, is a huge figure in Irish mythology and was probably one of the most important gods, if not the most important, in pre-Christian Ireland. And he's such a larger-than-life figure that we'll only be scratching the surface of the complexity of his character today, but we'll be spending a bit more time on him when we talk about the wooing of Attain. The second part of this story involves a poetic satire that has a huge impact on the rule of Brez and we'll be talking about the importance of satire in Ireland and having a look at what Breton Law had to say about satirists. But just to recap, after the two a day defeat the Furbolg in the first battle of Maitura, Brez is installed as their high chieftain, replacing Nuda who lost an arm in the battle. You can listen to this in more detail in episodes 3 to 5. And the sweet taste of victory turns sour as Brez becomes a tyrant and forces the gods to labour while he lives in luxury and also sends a huge tribute to a mysterious sponsor overseas. Needless to say, the gods are not one bit happy with this situation. Akma, who has been forced to collect firewood, goes on strike and with his free time constructs a new system of writing with which he sends a coded message to the four corners of Ireland. This is, of course, the Oum alphabet that we hear about in episode 7. And this message inspires Jean Kecht, Gobnu and Credna to create a new arm for Nuada, and now the clock is ticking on Brez's rule. 
So now we're up to date and we can find out if the two a day can overthrow Brez as the Dagda strikes back. Fado, Fado, in Erin. The ones you love and the product of your labour will be carried away to a land beyond the sea if you do not take heed of these words and use them for your protection. The Dagda stares at the words on the birch bark he holds in his hand. Only seconds before they were lines, just lines. Then there were squiggles and shapes and finally they became words. The Dagda, a hero of the battle against the Firbulg, is starving. Every day he digs trenches for the fortifications that Brez is having built all over Ireland. Every day, after working for every hour there is light in the sky, he returns home to the same scene. The satirist Crigin Bell waits at his door, demanding food lest Adagda's famous honour be broken, lest the hospitality he is known for is questioned, opening him up to ridicule in verse. Give me the three best bits of your food, says Crigin Bell. Every day, the Dagda complies. He gives Crigin Bell three bits of food, each the size of a good-sized boar. This leaves him with one measly piece, barely bigger than a piglet. The Dagda once again surveys the piece of tree bark with the words of his brother Agma carved on them. He stares hard at the lines. Maybe they will reveal something else. The lines turn on their side, become waves, settle into the form of a river, and from that river comes a child. The child has golden hair, radiant skin, and wears flowing robes of crimson, gold and white. The child levitates until his eyes are level with the Dagda's. Who are you? the Dagda asks. The child smiles. I am the young son, seed of the shining one, nurtured in water, born of the valley of the old ones. What do you want? asks the Dagda. I want nothing now, replies the child, but I have something for you. What? asks the Dagda. Advice, answers the child. And what will you want in return for this advice? Only one thing, replies the child. When I come into the world, and after a time discover my true self, I will ask you to grant me a mound in the she, which you will have the power to do by then. Then, by all means proceed, the Dagda says. When you return to your dwelling this eve, as is the case every night, Crigenbell will demand the three best bits of your food says the child. Fat leech, the Dagda mutters. The child clasps his two hands together and when he opens them, three gold coins appear. When Crigenbell makes his demand tonight, put each of these coins into the three best bits of your ration. Then these will certainly be the three best bits and Crigenbell will eat them and die. The Dagda takes the coins. But sure then, everyone will say, the Dagda has killed Crigenbell with a deadly herb which he gave him in his food, he interjects. True, answers the child, 
and Brez will order your execution. But you will say this to him. What you say, great chief of the warriors of the Aaron, is not a noble truth. For Crigimbel kept harassing me since I began work, saying to me, Give me the three best bits of your food, Dagda. My housekeeping is bad tonight. Brez looks down upon the defendant, the Dagda. The older god was once his better, once looked down on him, but not now. Brez holds the Dagda's life in his hands, and he would love to end it, but he can't. Not yet. Damn etiquette. There are still those loyal to him, in this very room watching, that would frown upon such an ignoble act as to not allow a fair trial. He must hear the Dagda's plea. Does this harassment you speak of warrant the death of my finest poet? Asks Brez as he waves a dismissive hand across the width of his body. Maybe, maybe not, responds the Dagda. But it will explain why he died. Go on then, replies Brez. The Dagda clears his throat, <clears throat> puffs out his chest and begins to speak. I found three gold coins yesterday, and as they were the three best bits of anything I possessed, I put them into the meal I was preparing that evening. The best bits of the meal then were the bits with the gold coins. Crittenbell ate them, and he died. Perhaps had he chewed his food? Brez leans forward on his throne, open-mouthed. This would exonerate you, I suppose, but we'll need proof. Send for Jean Kecht. Have Crigenbell cut open. If gold is found, you will live. But if it is not found, you will die. Brez's court has quickly been transformed into something resembling a halfway house between a morgue and a coroner's court. Crigenbell's corpse lies on a wooden gurney in the middle of the room. Jean Kecht is elbow deep in Crigenbell's torso. He roots around for a bit, and then pulls out a gold coin. Brez and his entourage gasp. Jinkecht goes back in again and retrieves the two other coins. The Dagda is exonerated. Brez looks aggrieved. I suppose this clears your name then, O could Olaher. It was a crafty move, I give you that. But there can be no legal repercussions from this act. And for your trouble, I suppose, and the work you have done for me, I will grant you a single gift of your choice. Stagda thinks for a minute. Gather all of the cattle in the land here at Rathbrez, and I will have my choice of them. Fair enough, replies Brez, looking towards one of his servants. Make it so. When the cattle are gathered, the Dagda points to a single black heifer. Herself there, he says, and the cow ambles over and takes her place beside him. Brez sits alone on his throne. Wind whistles through the great hall of Rathbrez, and the hearth is empty and cold. He is puzzled by the Dagda's choice of prize. A single heifer. I'd have thought he'd have looked for something a bit more substantial. 
it is a welcome turn of events for Brez, who, all things considered, has been having a few bad days. The tribute is due, and Brez's sponsors have been eyeing up that herd. There are more pressing matters to attend to, however. The loss of Criddenbell, his personal satirist, was a blow to his prestige, and time is of the essence. There are rumblings of revolt. Some rumour of a coded message from Akma, who has not brought firewood to Rathbrez in weeks, and the tribute of the Tua has been getting smaller and smaller, while the excuses get bigger and bigger. He must recruit a new satirist. Their words will shield him from Akma's magic. Their verse will strike like spears upon his enemies. Words that impale, words that flay. The ones who would challenge him will pay. It is a welcome sight then, when one of Brez's royal guards leads the poet Corpora into the hall. Brez gestures to the guard to be on his way. Corpora half-heartedly bows. Great chieftain, what is thy bidding? asks the poet. With the death of Criddenbell, there is a vacancy at Rath Brez for a man of your talents, Brez replies. Corpor glances around the almost empty room. It would seem, my lord, that there are quite a few vacancies. Brez scowls. Indeed, but with your help we can make this place a hive of activity again. Can you give me an example of the kind of work I could expect from you? Corpor frowns. I have travelled far, my lord, and hunger, thirst and tiredness are bearing down upon me. Brez shakes his head. Of course, where are my manners? He claps his hands, and a rag-clad, undernourished-looking servant girl enters the hall. She approaches the throne, kneels and bows, then upon Brez's signal, approaches her chief. Brez whispers in her ear, and she goes out, presumably to prepare a feast, Corpus surmises, as he looks around in vain for somewhere to sit. The servant returns, carrying a small plate, and hands it to Corpora. On the plate are three small cakes. He bites into one. It's hard and dry. Corpora forces down the rest of the cake and hands the other two back to the servant girl. Show our guest to his quarters, Brez instructs the girl. Rest yourself, Corpora. Tomorrow you will compose a satire for me. Corpora half-heartedly bows. Indeed I will. He follows the girl to the guest quarters where he finds a stone slab to sleep on and no bedding. The next morning, before dawn, Corpora rises early, gathers his things and leaves Rath Brez. As he walks through the neighbouring village, he recites the satire he agreed to compose for Brez. Without food, quickly on a dish, without cow's milk on which a calf grows, without a man's habitation after darkness remains, without paying a company of storytellers, let that be Brez's condition. Brez's prosperity no longer exists, let there be blight on him from this hour. The poem spreads among the common folk. It reaches the ears of the demigods and gods. What meagre tribute 
that has to this moment gone to Brez becomes nothing. Nuada calls an assembly of the Tua. Nuada, the Dagda, Jean Kecht, Gobnu, Kredna, Bao, Macha, Nyawan, Baumva, Fola, even Brez's own mother, Eru, and the returned Akma stand united. Brez has no fight left in him. He stands down as chief without opposition. Nuada is restored as chief of the land above, and the Dagda becomes chief of the land below. The land known as the Shi. So Brez really didn't stand a chance after insulting Corpora with that piece of dry cake, did he? No, that was it. Um, whatever chance he had to retain or regain control, he was finished after that. Sure, you can't be insulting your guests with a, a measly bit of dry cake. Um, but that said, it's it's more than you'd get with a cup of tea if you were in England. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, satirist or not, that would be talked about. Sure, there was a chap in my class at school who'd make a pot of tea with one tea bag, and his family wasn't short of a few quid either. So he was the talk of the school when that got out, and us only teenagers. That's that's why they weren't short of a few quid. But anyway, um, so yeah, that's that's the end of Brez, or or is it? Well, the question remains of whether he's just going to accept his hu- humiliation, or is is there going to be some scheme to try and win back his position? Well, you might have an idea of what happens next if you are familiar with the saga of the Second Battle of Maitura, but we do have a little hint right at the end of today's show, so make sure you listen to the end of the credits. Well, it was falling apart from Brez before the satirist arrived anyway. As soon as Agma down tools, it set off a domino effect and the other gods started to withhold their tribute. So here we have the Dagda being made to work all the hours, digging ditches and building forts, and he's been harassed by Brez's satirist, uh, Cridumbel. The Dagda has to give up the three best bits of his food to the poet for fear of getting the same treatment that toppled Brez. Then, after receiving Akma's message, which we saw Jean Kecht receiving in a previous episode, he encounters an apparition bringing advice. Now, this is one of the changes that we made. In the actual saga, and this week I leaned more on the Elizabeth Gray 1982 translation than the older Whitley Stokes one that we were using in the previous episode, there's a person, or rather a god, who gives this advice to the Dagda, not the apparition of a child, but the god in question really doesn't belong in this saga, in my opinion anyway. Yeah, this god plays such a bit part around in in the second battle of Maitura that it just felt like he was there for the sake of it. But in our chronology, he's yet to be born. And for the sake of no spoilers, in case you don't already know, we won't say his name, though it is kind of in the story. Or one of his names anyway. But you'll find out in the first episode of season two. And everything will be explained about the child apparition. But if you were wondering if it's the child of Prague, no. But I did deliberately describe him that way. The advice he gives, though, is very interesting because it involves wordplay and trickery. And we encounter this a lot in Irish mythology, where a character has to be very careful with the words they use, because if they can be interpreted in more than one way, they will be. 
that's also a very common theme in stories about magic. You have to get the wording of the spell exactly right. Now, there's a short story written by W.W. Jacobs in 1902 called The Monkey's Paw. And in it, this man comes into possession of the titular enchanted object. He wishes for £200 so he can pay off his mortgage. And the next day, a man arrives from the factory where his son works to tell him that his son was killed. And before he leaves, the factory representative hands the man a compensatory payment of £200. Yeah, the monkey's paw, that's a, it's very famous, but it's a kind of a um, be careful what, what you wish for message. In this case, literalism is the tool used by the Dagda. Bell wants the three best bits of his food, so he gives him the three bits with the gold. And when Brez finds this out, he can't find fault because the Dagda literally did what was asked of him. Now, you know, this kind of reminds me of the Barnbrack where we're, that we were talking about in our uh, sound special. Yeah, it's also almost a trope, really, in TV comedies now where, you know, there's a proposal. If a proposal is about to take place in a restaurant, someone will, will inevitably always eat the ring. <laughs> um, recently, the most recent one I saw, I rewatched The Mindy Project and that happens. And oh, this is a bit of a spoiler alert. I think I think we're past the spoiler embargo on the Mindy Project, probably. Probably, yeah. Sorry, Mindy Lahiri, if you're listening. <laughs> Not because. Anyway, uh, but I do want to point out... Um, or I do want to mention that hiding golden food is not all that uncommon in Irish literature. So do you know the song Peggy Nuss Padder? Oh, yes. We're, yeah, so we're, that yeah. song. So there's, an, there's a song, an Irish trad song called Peggy Nuss Padder. And the song is about this man who goes off to, um, he goes off to work and he's gone for years and years. And then he arrives back. And the point that the song is actually quite funny. Um, the lyrics are all in Irish, but it's he comes back anyway, and he walks in and he says to his wife, "Oh, you know who's this?" Because he sees this person, you know, snuggled into her or whatever, and like he says, "Who is this?" And she said, "Oh, it's it's your child who you've never seen." And he's, you know, it's your baby, and he's like, "I've never seen a baby with a beard before." <laughs> but, um, but in the song. Uh, the person that he works for for years and years he doesn't pay him but when he get, he gives him this cake of yellow meal and when they cut open the cake all of the money is in the cake it's actually do you know the song Seven Drunken Nights by the Double yes yes so apparently this is what inspired that song ah I did not know that I now. think I know both those songs but I didn't know yeah yeah but anyway I suppose a cautionary tale for people about the importance of chewing your food, really, is the point there. But um, the whole episode, this whole episode in the saga of the Second Battle of Maitura hinges, as do several stories featuring the Dagda, on his legendary hospitality and his strict code of honour. And this tells us something about some of his characteristics as a god and also about the importance of hospitality, at least as far back as early medieval Ireland. And this might go some way to explaining why not giving a visitor a biscuit in my parents' house is considered to be tantamount to some class of a war crime. So, yeah, yeah. long history. God, you, you'd be hearing about that for years. You would. But I am. Um, anyway. Do you remember the time my, my dad, I was making some, some food for my dad. It was a sandwich and I said to him, do you want butter on it? <laughs> it's like horrified that I would even ask. <laughs> But anyway, that's not even related to biscuits. But 
<laughs> that's well, hospitality. Yeah, yeah. You'd, there expect, you go. You'd, expect, you'd expect a bit of butter. Honestly. Yeah. I was like, we'd said to him, listen, I've just, I've spat in this to you. <laughs> Just looked at me like I ten heads. What? Why would I not want butter in this, mad bitch? <laughs> he didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. But he was horrified. Yeah. Anyway. anyway, the doctor, according to the book of his invasions of Ireland or the Lower Gawala Aaron, was the proud owner of a cauldron from which no company ever went unsatisfied. The cauldron was known as the Undry, or in Middle Irish, Cor Anshik. The undry cauldron because it never ran dry. Shocker. Yeah. That was a bit on the nose. <laughs> it was. Um, so, in an essay called A Cauldron of Abundance, in a book called Harp Club and Cauldron, which is an anthology of writing about the Dagda, edited by Laura O'Brien and Morpheus Ravena, Chris Thompson and Isold O'Brolchan Carmody, uh, they make the link th- between the Dagda, his cauldron, and a rank in early medieval Irish society known as the Brugu. The Brugu was a hospitalier who, according to the Brehan Law Tract, uh, Brehan Emmett was obliged to have a never dry cauldron, a dwelling on the main road, and a welcome to every face. Now, according, according to Fergus Kelly in A Guide to Early Irish Law, the office of the Brugu seems to have been one by which a wealthy man of non-noble birth could acquire a high rank through displaying the hospitality and generosity so admired by the early Irish. Another requirement for the Brigu, what according to the essay mentioned by Steffi there, was that he had to have cattle, in, cattle numbering in the hundreds. While at the end of today's story, the Dagda only has one cow, that one will lead to him fulfilling that role later in the saga of the second battle. So Brehan Law, which we talked about a lot in a previous episode, was the system of law that was in place um, in the time of medieval Ireland. And the Brehan Law tracts contain lists of offences. And one of these is the refusal of hospitality. This offence was known as the Esoin Lit, uh, driving away, and it required compensation appropriate to the injured party's rank. So your obligation to provide hospitality varied according to your rank in society. It's, it's not like the impoverished could be expected to host a banquet of some kind. But the Brugu, as we've heard, was obliged to provide for everyone. So we can see why, if the Dagda to some extent represents this role, why it would have been considered a greater offence to refuse Criddenbell the three best bits of his food, then to put the gold that killed him into those bits. Now, we usually delve a bit into comparative mythology on the podcast, and this is an area that can lead to a bit of controversy when it comes to the Dagda. For such an important figure in Irish mythology, there's relatively little in the way of academic or scholarly writing specifically on him, which is why I would highly recommend that book, Harp, Club and Cauldron. And he is often linked to the Greek Zeus, Roman Jupiter, and by extension, the Norse god Thor, or seen as a sun god. All theories we'll come back to in season two, but I just wanted to mention a link that is often dismissed, and that's to the god of Norse mythology, Odin, and by extension, Mercury, Hermes, and Thoth from Egypt. Say Odin again. Odin. Go on, say it again. Odin. It's very, uh, it's a good pronunciation there. <laughs> I hope so. So we've mentioned that one of the doctor's names is Ochid Olaher, the horseman supreme father, while Odin 
among his hundred or so names is has Allfather or Allfather, but this obviously wouldn't be enough to link the two at all. But he's also known as Fimbultir, uh, which means the great god, while the Dagda roughly translates as the good god. And in both cases, good and great refer to being skilled at being a god rather than good in the sense of good versus evil. Of course, comparative mythology is difficult when it comes to linking gods of different cultures, as with the exception of the ca- of cases like the Irish god Achma and the Gaulish uh, Achmius that we mentioned in episode 7, it's hard to find any two who were exactly the same. But in terms of today's story, it's worth noting that Odin had a hall called Valhalla or Valhall, where those slain in battle go, and where there is an eternal feast. It is also said to be Odin who chooses the slain, and of course the Dagda has that club or staff that can take away life or restore it. And we'll come back to these links and others um, that for me put the Dagda in the same category as Odin and Mercury and Hermes and the Egyptian Toth in season two, along with the competing theories. The other big theme in today's story is satire, and it's really a tale of two satirists. The first, Cridenbell, uses his position to abuse the laws relating to hospitality, while the second, Corpora, uses his position to deliver justice. And going back to the Breton law tracts on hospitality, a chieftain was obliged to provide hospitality to any law-abiding free man. Brez's hospitality in that regard was sorely lacking, and we can see that he paid a very heavy price for this, losing his position of leadership. And the instrument by which he is brought to justice is corpus satire. According to Fergus Kelly's book on early Irish law, One of the poet's most important functions is to satirise and praise. He mentions a description of the Irish by the 16th century English chronicler Stanahurst. They were greedy of praise and fearful of dishonour. And it was the filly or poet who had the power to dish out either. A satire against you could be worse than having a lot of bad reviews on TripAdvisor. So the poet was so powerful in their role as satirists that they were believed to have supernatural powers. Their words could literally finish you. The Annals of Connacht even mentioned death by poetry. In 1440, you know, there's a lot of poems on Instagram these days where I think death by poetry (laughs) might make a bit of a comeback, to be honest. But anyway, in 1414, Lord Lieutenant John Stanley is said to have been killed by a poet's spell. But having your own poet at hand could be beneficial, not just as a weapon against your enemies, but for protection from sorcery. So you can see why Brez was so eager to replace Cridenbell. And it's interesting to note that all of these skills of creativity were viewed as being quite magical in early Irish society. So remember, we talked in a previous episode about the blacksmith who was considered to have magical powers as well. Now, as you might imagine, with such great power come laws that govern how it is used. These laws differentiate between justified and unjustified satire. Justified satire was seen as a means of holding the powerful accountable and making them obey the law. If they didn't, the satire could see them losing everything, and it was even an offence to ignore satire. So justified or unjustified, you had to deal with it, and your honour was damaged until you did. 
There are a series of offences related to unjustified satire, including mocking a person's appearance, publicising a physical blemish, coining a nickname that sticks, taunting, wrongfully accusing another of theft, and publicising an untrue story which causes shame. Uh, like other Breton laws, the compensation depended on what your honour price was, which was basically a valuation of your status in society. So the likes of the chieftain or brigu would have a very high honour price requir- requiring large compensation if wronged. If you ignored a satire, you lost your honour price altogether. And that's how serious it could be. It all reminds me of social media where you often see people in power or celebrities or people with great wealth equating people holding them to account online with when people who don't have such power are bullied because of their gender or race or sexuality. That distinction in Brehan law could be useful there. There are quite a number of people who... I, don't, I would wonder how they would fare out under Brown law when it comes to that sort of thing. But um, I, I also quite like that law about coining a nickname to that sticks. Um, there's, there'd be a lot of people in trouble today if that was still in the books. In a very 2020 version of this, there are lots of people, particularly in the US, who have sued other people for having been turned by a meme into uh, by someone else. So one of the interesting cases that I was looking at reading about recently was, do you remember Techno Viking? I don't actually remember that one. You do. You absolutely do. It's so the scene is for anyone who's, I mean, if you search, if you just like literally Google Techno Viking. Doing it now. It will come up on YouTube. You'll know the second you see it. So it's this, there's a crowd and they're dancing in on the street in Berlin. I actually thought it was Amsterdam the first time I seen it, but it's Berlin. And then this man kind of bumps into a woman and then this guy who looks, who's like a Viking and he's there with his shirt off and he kind of comes over and he points his finger at your man as if to be like, watch your step, bud. And then this like techno music is going <laughs> and he dances down the street and the camera follows him. Well, I'm going to have to watch that afterwards. I'm just looking at uh, pictures. That's him there, is it? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly him. He so. does look like he's an extra from the show Vikings, doesn't he? Or yeah, so he he sued for uh, mis. I mean, he there was lots of business deals and stuff around, you know, monetizing that meme. But he he was one of the famous cases he sued right. because I think um he to try and keep his his actual identity a secret. So there was like one of those MMA cage fighter people. Uh, who people thought was who like because the whole question was who was who is Techno oh, right. Viking. So, and we'll never know is is that the outcome of the case? Well, we don't know. Well, we <laughs> currently don't. Well, I'm sure. I mean, people know. I mean, his family. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm sure. You know, maybe his mom saw him on YouTube and was like, "Well, <laughs> that's a cool video." Um, but I could just imagine him walking into into Clark's and the lads all going, "Ah, all right, techno Viking." <laughs> <laughs> Actually, if, if you knew someone from Drada and their nickname was Techno Viking, it wouldn't surprise me at all. But anyway. So, um, so really, the divergent fortunes of the two big figures in today's story, to what, what this podcast is actually about, <laughs> are tied to how they approach hospitality and their dealings with satirists. So the Dagda, despite being wronged by Crittenbell, is at pains not to give him an excuse to satirise him and extends the fullest of hospitality to him. Well, Brez, who is already getting a reputation for greed is found wanting in the hospitality department. His miserly offering of three dry cakes and a bed without bedding draws the justified ire of Corpora, who Brez had invited to his court as a protector and scourge of his enemies. But Corpora ends up bringing about 
Brez's demise instead. And this brings the other gods of the two a day together in a position of strength opposed to Brez for the first time since Nuda was deposed. Brez is unseated without so much as a shield being raised or a sword unsheathed. The weapons that defeat him are wordcraft in the form of corporate satire, the Dagda's wordplay, Akma's message, magic and medical science, which we see when Jean Kecht gives Nuda his new arm and the craft of smiths when Gobnu and Kredna create that arm. So it seems that justice is restored, but how will Brez react? He's literally lost everything, both physical wealth and power and his honour, and pretty soon someone malevolent is going to come knocking, looking for that tribute that he's been sending overseas. Whether Brez timidly gives in or conspires to win his throne back remains to be seen in season two. But as we mentioned, keep listening to the end of the credits today for a little preview. We also mentioned that there's a time jump in the saga of the Second Battle of Moitura. So as season two begins, we're going to work some standalone stories involving the two a day into our chronology. There are quite a few, and the mythological cycle, which is the overall name for this collection of stories, doesn't have the same sense of an intact chronology the way the Ulster cycle featuring Cúchulain or the Fenian cycle featuring Fionn Machúil have. Well, that's all we have time for today. And if you've been enjoying the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron. The Irish Mythology Podcast will always be free to listen to on the usual podcast platforms, but it is not free to make. Your financial support can help us keep making it and continue to invest in things like additional recording equipment, books for research, and down the line, the ambitious one, paying actors and crew to make full cast productions of the sagas you love. There's also a range of benefits at different price tiers, and from just €3 a month, you get early access to each episode's story scripts and enhanced show notes, while from €5 a month, you get access to bonus episodes. So go and have a look on patreon.com forward slash Irish Mythology Podcast. And you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology, and online at Irish Mythology Podcast.ie. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings, and if you like the show, please do us a favour and give us a five-star rating. It really, really, really helps us reach a wider audience. And always, always remember, if someone visits you, offer them a couple of rich teas or something. Because if you don't, well, they might just go home and tell their ma that there's no raring on you. Or, you know, they could end up writing a satire of your life that results in you being called to a meeting of gods and demigods and having your throne taken from under you without so much as a whisper. So bear that in mind. Give us a five-star rating and we'll see you next time on Irish Mythology Podcast. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written presented and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license. Brez, chief of the two-a-day and ruler of Ireland, there seems to be some delay with your tribute. Lord Baller, there has been an unforeseen turn of events. Unforeseen? 
I am no longer chief. I have been overthrown by sorcery and satire. Nuada has been restored to the throne. Hmm. A setback in our plan. Never mind. Go to your mother and ask her about your father. She said he lives in a faraway land. Indeed, son of Formal. Your father is one of us. After you speak to your mother, make the journey to the northwest. My scouts will meet you and take you to him. As you command, Lord Baller.